Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 292. This time around, you're joined by multi-Emmy Award-nominated writer, producer, and showrunner, Rebecca Sonnenshine, and Critics' Choice-nominated actor, Dina Shihabi. The time of release, their fantastic and terrifying new show, Archive 81. We love this. It's available on Netflix now. Executive produced by James Wan. Hear about the evolution of the original highly acclaimed podcast series into this dread-soaked audio-visual nightmare. Explore the mysteries of the Visser apartment building by dissecting the sets and mechanics of building real-time scares and reveals. Tear into the sinister soundscapes constructed by Portishead's Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury. Find out what's in store moving forward and so much more. The rent is due for episode 292, now playing. We're looking for an artist. Someone who can restore a recently acquired collection of damaged videotapes. Well, what kind of damage? Fire damage. There's just one hitch, because the materials are so fragile, they can't be moved. So you'd be doing the work at our remote research facility. Creating this archive, putting this puzzle together, it would mean the world to everyone who lost someone in that fire. I'm Melody Pendris. It's March 11th, 1994, 10.32 a.m. This is day one of the Oral History Project on the Visser Apartment Building. I'm now going to go knock on some doors. Wish me luck. Do you hear it? Hear what? There's something in this place that calls to you. Hello? Hello? Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two incredibly talented storytellers. She is a multi-Emmy-nominated writer and producer whose early work includes the 2007 horror film American Zombie and 2008's The Haunting of Molly Hartley before writing and producing Julie Pleck and Kevin Williamson's 37-time award-winning series, The Vampire Diaries, whose premiere was the most watched in the CW's history. She has since worked on Cinemax's Outcast, The Crossing for ABC, and Amazon's Saturn award-winning six-time Emmy-nominated The Boys. We welcome Rebecca Sonnenshine. Also here with us, a wonderful actor who starred in several acclaimed independent feature films before joining the cast of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, earning her a Critics' Choice nomination. She's since added Marvel's Daredevil and Netflix's multi-Emmy-nominated Altered Carbon to the list. She has done it all from dancing to stage productions, including playing three roles in Steve Martin's Picasso at the Le Pont Agile, Lincoln Center Theater's Power Strip, and more. She is Dina Shihabi. A time of release, their brand new series, Archive 81, is now available exclusively on Netflix. We are honored to welcome once again showrunner Rebecca Sonnenshine and star Dina Shihabi. 
Yeah. yeah. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hey, guys. Yeah. Congratulations on an incredibly disturbing show. This thing yes. is mesmerizing <laughs> in the sense that it, it invokes things for us. I mean, we're massive horror fans. It invokes everything from The Shining to Rosemary's Baby. So we want to get into the horror genre itself right off the top. So, Dina, what has your experiences been like with horror as a viewer? Do you remember the first time you were exposed to the genre and what that was like for you? Oh, yeah. I remember watching The Exorcist when I was four years old from behind a couch. <laughs> and one of my most vivid childhood memories. And it's haunted me ever since. I've never gotten over it. Um, I, I, I like remember how I felt on that day still so viscerally. Would you call yeah. yourself a horror fan moving forward after that point? Or was this something you steered away yeah, from as a viewer? I, yeah, I I like the feeling of being scared. I also think horror movies can be the most profound and deeply moving films as well. I think there's something about like the heightened reality of it that can just like make you feel more deeply. So yeah, I'm a fan. Mm. Do you have like one or two favorites off the top of your head that you can recall? Rosemary's baby is actually one of my favorites. Um, I've watched that and rewatched that. I watched it while we were shooting the show too. And it, um, I kept it in mind as we were shooting archive and I think, you know, I rewatched the exorcist as well years later and loved it. I think it's an incredibly disturbing and just good movie. Yeah. It's a really good movie. Yeah. What would you say are the joys of creating and performing in that space? What's interesting is that you just feel like you're shooting a drama when you're doing it because you're getting invested in the emotional life of the character and in the relationships. And there were days that I were, I was actually scared. Like the seance scene really freaked me out um, because everything you see is what we saw on set. It was really happening. And the actress Saul who played that part, just, I mean, as Rebecca, she did it full out every single take and that scared me and gave me nightmares for a while. Yeah, that, that's the maybe most interesting part of it is that it, it gets into your subconscious. You start having nightmares when you're shooting a show like this. It starts to like, you start to think, dream about having mold in your house and all of that stuff was kind of messing with me. Um, yeah, I can imagine it would take a while to shake, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it definitely had an effect on my well-being for sure for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rebecca, over to you. I mean, horror has been such an important part of your body of work. What was your gateway experience into it as a fan? I think the first horror film I ever saw was The Birds on TV. And I was very young. I probably was like five or six. My dad really liked... He liked horror films, but he liked weird films. And so um, it probably wasn't appropriate for a kid to be watching, but... I saw it and I was terrified because there's these sequences where these birds, you know, are pecking at <laughs> Tippy Hedren and it's really scary to a kid. Um, but even watching that film as an adult, it does this thing that I really admire, which I try to do in the stuff that we make is like this, like very sustained dread. So there's like these long moments of just like, there's, you don't cut, 
you know, you're just kind of in it and you're watching those birds kind of land on the jungle gym. And um, so, so that film was very, <laughs> that was the first horror film I ever saw. And I was really scared. Um, I didn't really seek out horror films until I got o- older. Um, it was more like my cousins would tell me the plot of like, uh, I remember them telling me the plot of The Shining and I was so scared. I couldn't sleep. My mom was so mad at them. But yeah, so I had a very active imagination as a child. By the time you started like really diving into the genre, were you like, were you a, a teenager? Were you at that point? Yeah. 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 yeah I was a teenager and um, I, yeah. And then I really loved them. Um, and you know, there's like different kinds of horror films. Like I, I, I really, I watch slashers, but I, my favorite are like more supernatural things. Those are, that's really my, cause I, I feel like your imagination really takes you into places that you can't quite put your finger on. It feels very real and, and yet it feels unknown as well. So, um, I'm very drawn to things that have some sort of supernatural bent to them. Like, I love Rosemary's Baby. I love The Shining. I love Don't Look Now. Stuff that's very atmospheric and unsettling. Right. Oh, perfect. And that's exactly what this show is. It captures that vibe. When I say The Shining and Rosemary's Baby, it's, it is more about that just overlying feeling of dread that just permeates everything you're watching and the way that the camera takes its time and the performances take their time to just truly unsettle you and crawl into your skin. It is immaculately done you guys so let's talk about archive 81 so i i personally i don't know about you leo but i wasn't aware of the original podcast series that this show is based on until after the fact which has been a fascinating experience now going back and starting to comb through what dan powell and mark sollinger created with that i didn't even know that they were the ones who started the whole hashtag audio drama sunday that narrative podcasts have been doing for a while now on, on social media. Right. So tell us a little bit just about the podcast itself and the process of evolving it into this series. The podcast is this very fun, twisty, you know, show that has this incredible soundscape to it. And, um, you know, I think audio drama is, is very it, it's just a different kind of it's just a different kind of storytelling than than once you get into a visual medium but it also has the same sort of premise of, of a found footage but it's audio tapes instead of videotapes and um yeah i think one thing that we really wanted to do was try and keep the spirit like keep within the spirit of the podcast while making a lot of changes that made it um you know, more just sort of conventional for a, for a, for a television show. There's certain things you need, you need, you know, certain kinds of um, arcs and, and like a a mythology that you probably step out a little more, but we also were very conscious in carving out time and space, even on set. Like we started composing the music before we started shooting so that we could (laughs) could have, we could have those, those, um, all those audio elements that would scare Dina on set. (laughs) They did scare me. 
she's saying that as a joke, like as making fun of me because I was really freaked out. So you were able to, Dina, you were able to actually interact with that stuff in real time. Some of that, that material. Oh yeah. And I, we use it as much as possible. Um, you know, the, when I hear the tune for the first time, we had the tune that day. So I was really hearing it for the first time and was, I think what is captured on camera was my genuine kind of reaction to it because it was so creepy and strange and haunting. It really helpful. Just yeah. to rewind it for for the listener who might not be just uh, you know savvy on what the actual premise of Archive eighty one the podcast and now moving on to this series is about. It's basically uh, how would you describe Rebecca? Like an archivist is hired to kind of go through these audio cassettes in the podcast version of this mysterious Archive eighty one. It's a he's got a job kind of restoring damaged audio tapes. So he's actually recording himself listening to these cassettes in real time. We move over, move over to this series where it's basically that idea done with video cassettes. So that's kind of what we're talking about. And one of my favorite yeah. things that uh, that we're mentioning now is that importance of sound and it, it's it takes itself from the source material to this experience we have this tremendous sound design in this case done by ben salisbury and one of my all-time favorite musicians jeff barrow from Portishead. they bring so much hopelessness to this journey i love their work on annihilation talk about working with them and what you guys think makes them so unique and perfect partners to build this world I was so I lucky that I really wanted them because I listen to their music all the time when I'm writing. Um, and it's so inventive and very um, evocative and emotional and scary. So I was so excited <laughs> when they said yes. Um, and I have to say, like working with them, you know, they are very invested in helping to tell the story. And obviously, in, in this case, we, we needed them at a, an earlier point in the process than maybe a lot of people would need them. <laughs> we need them in pre-production to start thinking like, what is this tune? Um, what is this song that is so important through the entire um, season and the series itself? And they really brought their storytelling like prowess to this project, which was everything is very like um, story-based and it's not just about what sounds cool, but there's like thought behind what these notes are and all of like, sort of the breathing and the breath work. That was their suggestion. Um, I thought it would have words. (laughs) I thought that, that was kind of my original conception, but they, they kind of, proposed that it was a little bit scarier um, and a little bit more primitive and just sort of like a going back to a deeper place of like more vocal work that didn't necessarily depend on, on like words to a song. So, um, so yeah, so they were amazing partners and, and obviously this tune takes many different forms throughout the season in all sorts of different ways. So it needed to be arranged in different ways and they were so up for it, you know, and then the score itself is different. Like we didn't want to sort of like intertwine the two very often because we wanted to keep that very much source music, you know, the tune and not have it be soundtrack or score. So 
it was a big job and I, um, it was so fun to work with them. They're really great, great collaborators and so smart. And like their approach to, I, I, how do I describe it? I mean, it, it goes so, so it married so well with the plot in that a lot of their work is based on the degradation and disintegration of audio. They're masters yeah. at that, and they they organically have that in their wheelhouse. So it was interesting to kind of hear that, you know, veiled, yeah. veiled in this project, which right. is perfect. Yeah, they brought a lot of their. They were like, "I listen to this. It's like the sound of a tape warbling," you know. <laughs> so it was very cool. And Leo, so uh, Dina was talking about, you know, actually being able to interact with you know the song that she hears hears for the first time through the walls of the apartment, which is part of this experience of her kind of spiraling down into this mystery. So Leo, you had a great question about the camera use. Yeah, Dina, was the camera you use mostly a prop during filming or did you actually get to improvise and capture some of that footage and that perhaps yield some happy accidents? Yeah, no, it was a real camera and I, um, I got to shoot everything, you know, I'm capturing. I was actually shooting on the day and I think they used well, everything that I shot, right, Rebecca? You all yep. really <laughs> which is really Every cool. Bit. Yeah. yeah, which is um, awesome. I took it quite seriously. I I like had a practice camera at home so that I would get comfortable with it, and um, it really felt like a part of playing the character to be able to do that well and really pay attention to it and not fuck it up. What <laughs> <laughs> was any of the things left as surprises for you to discover as you have this camera, any of the scenes that you walk into the breathing scene, for instance, at the community, you know, center hub of the, was some of that yeah. stuff you seeing it and interacting with it the very first time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea what I was walking, walking into. Um, and I thought the breathing was really disturbing and I was behind way we shot it. I was alone for most of it. I was behind, you know, I'm kind of hiding and no one was with me there. And so it was really dark. I'm kind of scared of the dark. And I was just like alone there with my camera. And I was like watching it through the, you know, the lens. And it was terrifying. It really creeped me out. The Boo Crew will be right back. From out of the crypt of the undead comes the movie's most gruesome terror. Christopher Lee, now more horrifying than his Dracula. Stop whatever you're doing and come to see The Blood Fiend. It will be one of the most bizarre experiences of your life. Never before have movies dared to show the unspeakable, unthinkable horror of The Blood Fiend. You'll be watching every dark street and doorway for dear life after you've seen The Blood Fiend. How did you prepare yourself? for this role? Did you dive into the source material and original podcasts at all to inform or what was that experience like for you? 
Honestly, it was all in the scripts. Yeah. I just um, read and reread and asked Rebecca a lot of questions and we had some rehearsal time, which was really nice. Um, but I got cast quite late and then was like in Pittsburgh a week later and then shooting like basically immediately, um, which in a way is great because you don't have time to like overthink it and get in your own way. But um, but yeah, it's all it's all in. I mean, Rebecca's a genius and the writers are incredible and it was just all there. And every question I had for Melody and some of them were just backstory things that I wanted to know and build. Rebecca had a whole world for me. Um, there was never something that I asked her that she was like, man, you can make it up. It was, there was always like this long, you know, email that I'd get back, which I loved. I, um, I really enjoyed that process. It was, I had the best time. It was really cool. Yeah. And Rebecca talking about just the casting and Mamadou is hypnotic to watch as Dan and ignites a very unique feeling of dread as you get that polarity and voyeurism of Melody, who is so full of light, but is also fading into this dark, dark place as she spirals down into this mystery. What were you looking for as far as casting each of them? Um, yeah, well, for Dan, definitely that quality of being very, um, you know, smart and um, kind of someone who can who has walls built up that that character has built up some walls. And so a very restrained sort of way of, you know, performing, but like everything plays in his, when you get into those close-ups, like you really feel every moment, there's so much going on um, in his eyes and his face, but it's also very restrained. And so that's exactly what we were looking for. And he's, he's really, he's alone so much of the time that, um, we just really were looking for someone who I said, this, this person has to be someone you cannot look away from. Um, and so I think we were so lucky to find um, that in, in Mamadou and, and for Melody, it was almost the, you know, we needed someone who was immediately like you, you fall in love with her. She's warm and she sort of exudes this, um, like you feel comfortable talking to her. That's, that's what we wanted. Like if she's good at her, what she does. So she gets people to open up to her. She's just puts people at ease and she's just sort of this bright sunlight that comes into a room. And so that's what Dina is in real life too. <laughs> she's just, she's like this gray of sunlight. And that's what we just needed somebody that, you look at her and you immediately, you want to help her. You want to be with her. You want to, you want to see her get everything that she wants, you know? So that was very important. You just have to, we had to really establish these connections between the characters and the audience quickly. So we were really lucky to find a, a group of incredible actors for the show. It's perfectly cast. And we love the humor in the character of Mark, the podcaster. And Dan is kind of connected <laughs> yeah. from to the outside world. He's disconnected from the outside world. He's got no internet access to this research laboratory he's, he's in. And this guy, Mark, is his tether. And 
uh, you know, he ventures off into the woods to report back the crazy discoveries he's making and it gets Mark to look up stuff on Google for him because he's, he can't look anything up. So tell us what that adds to the writing experience and journey of the show. That that character and that that element of humor. He's so great in the show. He's isn't so he? funny. He's so great. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's really good. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely need somebody in your show or your story, I think, that can bring this um, this energy and this kind of, you know, light to 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 a character. He's he's so, you know, Matt really brought a lot to this character. Um, We just wanted somebody who was a big personality. You know, it's kind of like to both um, both Dan and Melody as characters both have these the, the parallel between them is they both have these best friends who are like kind of these big personalities, <laughs> um, which often people match up as I know I do <laughs> um, match up with kind of big personalities um, because they're a lot of fun and they, you know, Mark is also just very loyal, but he's also very open-minded, right? He is like very into supernatural. He, he'll believe anything, right? He's not a skeptic. And Dan sort of starts out as a skeptic and Mark is not a skeptic. He's, he's willing to go with it. Um, he's super outgoing. You know, we suggest that like he maybe wanted to be an actor at some point. So it's just very fun to have that sort of comic element into a very dark story. Yeah. Yeah. It really ignites something very, very unique and it pulls us in as an audience. Let's talk a bit about the research lab itself and this crazy like monolithic house that Dan is trapped in. And then also the Visser apartment building. So tell us about those two locations in particular. Are they real life locations? Are they sound stages? What's the story? They are real life exteriors. Okay. <laughs> um, and they are the interiors are built on a south stage. Um, so, and the exteriors, you know, they have, we, <laughs> the production designer, Tony Barton, she definitely like, uh, transformed them in the exteriors, the Visser, you know, we needed it to look like 1994 New York. So I think it felt that, I think it felt that way to, to me. I don't, I think, I don't know, Dina did. I felt like it felt very authentic both inside and out. <laughs> Yeah, Dina, yeah. As, as a as a performer, that element of heightened production design, what was that like to experience and go through? Oh, it felt so real. It was incredible. Th- that Vister apartment building, you walked into it and it was like you were in a vortex, like other dimension that was actually that apartment building. Tony did an incredible job. It felt so real. Yeah, those, those hallways, actually, they all connect. So we oh, wanted something that... You- yeah, the, they, it goes in a circle, so you really could just walk around the whole thing. Um, we wanted these long hallways that felt very claustrophobic, so that's sort of how she designed it so that we could do that. <laughs> I love the fact that you brought out a Pixel Vision camera. <laughs> I couldn't believe my eyes. I don't know many. I, I tell people about Pixel Vision cameras because I remember that from my childhood. It was like the late 80s. Fisher Price made this toy camera that I think the premise behind it was it would capture video on audio cassette. Is that the mechanics right. behind it? Right. So yeah. you ended up with this crazy looking 
video, like really low, low five video. And I, as far as I know, they have film festivals of Pixel Vision movies to this day. Yeah, it's a very strange format. It's, um, it, yeah, it runs on audio cassettes. So it is low grade and you need a lot of light for it. <laughs> um, but I've always been fascinated by that format. And so here's our chance. Wow. So did you actually have to, do you, do you own a Pixel Vision camera? Is that your personal camera or do you have to go and track one down? Well, I have, a, I have a camera, but we, you know, for everything we had to track down more yeah. because you always need more. <laughs> Like we had many high cameras, we had to get the same one and 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 some PXL two thousands. So obviously, like <laughs> you can't really. We used the, the you know Dina shot high millimeter tape that we used, right? Um, but you can't actually use <laughs> PXL two thousand. It's too. It, it doesn't too have enough information. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so, but we did like we did take you know what we had seen people shoot and then we created a look for it um, to recreate that. Got it. Got it. So on Dan's side of things, just the general mechanics of the shows, he's watching these videos that, that Dina took. And in, in fact, actually really took a lot of these videos as we're learning. Uh, was the mechanics of, uh, of that set up so that he was able to actually watch and react to some of this footage that was being shown to him or is he looking at a green screen and is that being added in after? It's a combination. I mean, in my mind, I had all these great plans of, you know, working our schedule because we shoot shoot in blocks of two that we would shoot all of um, Melody's stuff first. And then we would have it for Dan in the back half of that block for him to watch. But um, then there was a pandemic. (laughs) So we, that was not the first thing on our mind was like, schedule we wanted that and we did have it sometimes we did it as much as we could but but then we just had to get really creative about scheduling all the time so it didn't my plan sort of fell apart but the great thing is that mamadou was able to you know he he doesn't i'm sure that he liked having it there but he also was able to do it without the footage there's some really subtle reactions that he was doing to some of the videos in particular that I was like, he's got to be watching it. So either way, he did an incredible <laughs> job. He definitely pulled off that illusion. Yeah. Yeah. James Wan is also one of the producers on the show. Did he uh, provide any onset advice for the horror elements or crafting the scares during production? Um, you know, we had the privilege of working with some of his producers Rob Hackett in particular and and Michael Clear, and they were able to come to set sometimes. I mean, it's a pandemic, so (laughs) it's sort of like a smaller uh, crew. And um, so we were really lucky to have them as, you know, some of our advisors and coming in to to give their, um, their suggestions. And it was really fun to have them around um, with that expertise. Sure. Sure. And Dina, Tell us a little bit about the different directors that you got to work with and what the experience was like of having your journey influenced by each of them, perhaps in different ways. I loved them all. Uh, we started out with Becca Thomas, who um, I feel like a deep soul connection to and like just will love her forever. And I'm so glad we did because I really feel like she set the tone Um 
with all the actors, but also on set. She was like such a leader and had such vision. And sometimes I felt like her and I were both playing Melody. There was this sort of kind of energy between us. And um, she would like walk, you know, everyone was in masks, by the way, throughout the whole process. I didn't see Rebecca's face in person, only on Zoom, which is strange. And, and actually... Um, to be completely transparent, the first week of filming, I felt really alone. I was alone a lot. Mamadou hadn't showed up yet. And I did a lot of my stuff alone and I couldn't see anyone's faces. And so you're not seeing people's expressions. And so you don't know what's coming at you really. And you're like, is, is everyone okay? Like what, you know what I mean? Like it's working on set is such an intimate experience. And so to have that, it took me a second. I would say it took me about a, a week or so to get used to it. Um, it was quite jarring. And Rebecca in particular would just come out and she would just like gesticulate and she would be she trying to be so like... <laughs> Compensate, yeah, overcompensate. For the, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, which I just loved. Um, yeah, and she was phenomenal. And then Justin and Aaron were just like are such weirdos in the best way, you know, like they were all, they'd come up and then they'd tell a joke and I, you know, in math. So you like kind of don't really get it, but um, <laughs> it was so fun to work with them too, because I felt like they were so creative and they had all these really cool ideas and um, everyone was so, everyone was like so genuinely kind and good too. And um, just really fun to work with. Haifal Mansour felt very special to me because she's from Saudi Arabia and I'm from Saudi Arabia. And to be two Saudi women working on a show that has nothing to do with, you know, being Arab or politics or any of the things that usually um, are the spaces we're playing in felt groundbreaking and is a testament to Rebecca for wanting that. And I thought Haifa's episodes were incredible. And um, she would give me direction in Arabic, which uh, I, which I loved. I was nervous about it at first because I wondered if it would get in the way of, you know, playing an American part. And, um, and it didn't, it actually felt like her and I had, privacy, which I think is a really um, important thing when you have a kind of private language, um, that kind of intimacy with a director, that trust, a shorthand. Um, so that felt really special to have that with her. And then Becca did the last two episodes. And by the time she came back, we were all like, yay, Becca again, because she's incredible. Um, I had, yeah, it was awesome. And I think it was, I think, I think watching the show too, it all really has the same language, even though you see the different colors of each of the directors, uh, it does have like a cohesive language, which I think is um, very impressive that they got to do that. Final question. Does the whole project end at this last episode? Are there plans to further expand this universe and get the chance to dive back into the visitor apartment again? Well, um, we certainly hope to be able to continue the story. It does end on um, a, something of a cliffhanger. Um, doesn't it wrap up? Um, certain things wrap up. We'd like to give answers 
that was one of the goals of this, this show, honestly, is not to, is to give answers to all, a lot of the mystery that we're, that we're proposing not to be too obtuse about (laughs) and just like really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like, okay, you want to know Well, here it is. But we also open a huge new (laughs) um, can of worms at the end. And we would love to be able to keep telling the story um, of Dan and Melody. And are you married to the source material as far as that stuff goes? Are you free to kind of explore and, and expand that? At this point, we definitely diverged from the podcast before we ended our season, you know, in some pretty big ways. So at this point, we've diverged. Um, but again, like I love the podcast and, you know, dipping back in for like details and we'll always have this sort of it's called the archive 81 narrative universe. We're just in a different branch of it now. Well, you yes. guys, again, congratulations on this series. It's going to blow yes. up. We absolutely love it. And thank you so yes. much for taking time to spend with us today. Thank you so much. Really Thank you. Awesome. You guys are amazing. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 292. Special thanks to our guests, Rebecca Sonnenshine and Dina Shihabi. The time of release, their new show, Archive 81, is available on Netflix now. Production tracks for this one provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at Tales from the Boo Crew. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.